So this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Psalms, and we find ourselves in a psalm of Asaph. And you might not know who Asaph was, but Asaph was a worship leader. And he's admitting something that is hard for many of us to admit and was also hard for him to admit, and that's that he was struggling with the sin of envy. And I think that the reason that religious types, people who are part of the church, have trouble admitting sins like that is because we believe the gospel in our minds, but we fail to believe the gospel in our hearts. So we say one thing, but at the core level of our being, we believe something different. And I think many of us have taken a legalistic approach to who God is. Now, Brennan Manning, in his famous book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, describes this approach to God well. He says, the legalistic God expects people to be perfect and to be in perpetual control of their feelings and thoughts. When broken people with this concept of God fall, as inevitably they must, they usually expect punishment. So they persevere in religious practices as they struggle to maintain a hollow image of a perfect self. The struggle itself is exhausting. The legalists can never live up to the expectations they project on God. So you see what Brendan Manning is saying is that when you have this legalistic approach to God and you have a feeling or a thought which you know to be wrong, the response is to stuff that emotion deep down within, to hide it from those around you and especially to hide it from God because you think if God knew about this, he would punish me. And Asaph does something very beautiful for those of us who are struggling with legalism. He shows us how to go from where we are to the very presence of God. And he tells us, through his life experience, that it is possible to be near to God to be in close proximity to him, to have relationship with him, not as the person that we wish we were, but as the person that we currently are, the person that we're hiding from God and from everyone else. And so there's three things we're going to see in the text. The first one is the necessity of truth. Look with me again at Psalm 73, verses 1 through 5. Asaph says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, for the lion's share of this psalm, Asaph is going to spend time describing in the presence of God 
what it is like to feel a disgusting level of envy in our hearts. But it's very important that we see him at the outset of the psalm declare his foundation. He says, this is the foundation of my life. This is what I believe. Truly God is good to Israel. So in the Jewish worldview and also in the Christian worldview, the basic belief that we have is that God is good. Good creator, good king, good judge. And this is really important for us to establish theologically in our minds before it trickles down into our heart. And it's very important to establish that because as you move through life, what is true is that almost everything in your experience will contradict that simple statement. So the problem that Asaph is dealing with is not because he doesn't believe that God is good. The problem that he's dealing with is because he does believe that God is good. So he's grasped this truth. Truly, God is good to Israel. But then he's saying, but then all these wicked people around me who want nothing to do with God, who have turned their backs on him, are prospering, and I am deeply struggling. It is necessary, if we are going to stumble as Asaph did, and reestablish our footing, rather than falling off the cliff into doubt and deconstruction, that we establish ourselves on the truth of God's word. God is good, even though it seems to me often like he is not. This is important, not just in our life of faith, but in all of our life. Do you remember learning in class in elementary school that people used to believe that the earth is flat? And so when they were going on these great expeditions across the ocean, they thought they might fall off the edge. And because of their belief, which was false, by the way, that <laughs> the earth is flat, their corresponding emotion was fear. Now that we've established the truth, the earth is round. If you go on a sailing trip on a large vessel, there should be no fear that you are going to fall off the edge because your emotions are conforming to the truth. And so here's what we can say about Asaph's emotional life and about our emotional life. It is possible to have true emotions, real feelings that are not based on facts. So when we are envious of the wicked and we lose our emotional stability, 
What we're really doing is screaming because we feel like we're about to fall off the edge of the earth. So the truth is necessary if we are going to win the fight with the strong emotions that we have that are often, if we're honest, directed toward God and are ugly and are very angry and bitter. So we need to establish this fact. Truly, God is good. That's our North Star. Okay, but something really interesting happens in the rest of the text. And the next point might even seem to contradict the first one. We see, yes, truth is necessary, but secondly, we see the inadequacy of reason. Okay, truth is necessary, but here's the problem. Truth is out there and it's objective. It comes from and is found in God himself. But our grasp of the truth and the truth are two different things. Which means if you try to figure God out, you are on a never-ending quest. You will never fully grasp him. Here's part of Asaph's struggle to understand something that's going on in the world. He describes people who have walked away from God. He says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So the majority of this psalm makes us very uncomfortable. It is not Asaph expressing the truth. It is not a doctrinal statement unpacking the goodness of God. It is a confession of deep-seated bitterness and anger toward God because what he sees in the world through his limited perspective is seeming to contradict what he knows to be true. And here's what he's seeing. He's seeing his fellow Israelites watch the pagan nations around them, watch people prosper. And one by one, he sees his friends start to leave the Jewish faith. Maybe not intellectually, but they're leaving it for all practical purposes. And they're saying, look, how can God know what I'm doing? How can he know that I'm sleeping around and spending my money however I want to spend it and being greedy and mistreating my employees and walking away from God's commands completely? How can God know that? And the very people who he is seeing leave God, he is seeing prosper. 
He's seeing their lives go up and to the right. And then he's looking at himself and he's looking at his friends who have stayed faithful to God, who are still coming to worship. Remember, this guy's in full-time ministry. He's a worship leader. And he's seeing the people that he knows that are being faithful to God and mainly himself, because let's be honest, most of us are concerned about ourselves, most. And he's saying, listen, those of us who are faithful to God are getting ruined. And then he's being really honest. He's saying, here's how my quiet time life is feeling these days. I'm, I'm even opening up God's word in the morning and I'm not getting the shining face of God's goodness and providence. I am being rebuked every morning. So these wicked people, they're prospering, they're always at ease, they're partying, they're having fun, they're enjoying life. And me, I'm getting my butt handed to me by God. I'm getting disciplined every morning. I'm not getting any credit for my high-achieving religious performance. It seems like I'm being punished for following after God. So he's a believer and absolutely hating it. What do you do with that? I think there's basically three options. One is, you can be a good religious person and you can stuff that down deep inside and hide it from everyone. And like Brendan Manning says, you can continue to go through the religious performance thinking that somehow through your religious performance by hiding your emotions, because after those, all those are wrong, that God will somehow approve of you because you've been so tough. Okay, or you can bail. You can embrace fully the cultural understanding of your emotions and you can say, not the Bible, but my emotions are the north star of truth. The reason that I feel this way is because this is who I am. And if you don't embrace who I am, then we can't be friends anymore. Or, option three, the recommended option here, be brutally honest with God. Like, I imagine when Asaph is writing this in his journal, he's holding his pen like this. And just write, like there's holes in his journal. He's writing on like seven pages. He's just pressing so hard. He is so angry. But within that, he does two really good things. One is, he stays silent. Here's what I mean by that. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here's what he's saying. I didn't tell everybody I was feeling this way. I let a close friend in. I let God in. I certainly didn't let this into my public ministry. I certainly didn't write a blog post about this. I didn't speak about it to others. When I was feeling this way, I was able to recognize 
these are my feelings, not the North Star of truth. So I didn't tell everybody. We live now in an age of authenticity where we think that everybody know, needs to know what we feel. There is something called discretion that needs to guard us against that. It is appropriate to tell a close friend some of what you're feeling. It is always appropriate to tell God all of what you're feeling. So he stays silent. The second thing he does that is good is he seeks to understand. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph is asking the age-old question. How can a good God allow this deep suffering in the lives of his people? and let wicked people get away with murder. But here's the conclusion he comes to. At first, he's reading all the apologetics books. He's diving into the word. He's sketching things out in a neat theological map. He's trying to understand and plumb the depths of God's intention in allowing suffering into the world. And he gets about halfway through and he throws up his hands. And he said, not only was that task impossible, it made my problem worse. I was exhausted by my own envy and then trying to understand myself in relationship to God and why he was governing the world as he was made matters worse. See, our rational minds cannot understand the depths of who God is. We need more than truth. We need trust. Imagine if you were on an airplane and you were super anxious about flying. And you were struggling to believe that that plane was going to get you from point A to point B. And so your solution was to get out a very scientific book that explained to you how jet engines were made. And so you started reading, like you're on the plane and you're just like, Reading. Is that going to be helpful to take away your anxiety? Maybe a little bit, but I think it's probably going to create more questions than it gives answers because your brain in that moment would not be able to comprehend the truth about jet engines in such a way that it would put your mind at ease. What do you need in that moment? You need trust. Somebody smarter than me at Boeing put this thing together. That pilot got good training. You need to start like rattling off the statistics about how much more safe it is to fly than it is to drive. And you need to, at the end of the day, 
Lean your seat back and trust, not understand. Understanding our reason is inadequate. Silently trying to fully understand God's ways is foolish because we are finite and he is infinite. Here's how God says it. He actually kind of makes fun of us. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Trying to understand God's thoughts and God's ways is like an ant trying to understand the internet. It ain't going to happen. Okay, so if truth is important, and yet reason is inadequate, what is the solution to our brokenness, which stems from in part, lack of understanding, and in part, just sinfulness and lack of trust on our part. Asaph does something surprising. He paints a picture for us about the joy of nearness. And here's what he points us to, this reality. Beneath your doubt about God, is a deep longing to be accepted by him. Trying to put all of the doctrine in the right slots is an attempt by you to become acceptable to him. And did you know that the gospel says you can come as you are? Look what Asaph says. I'm going to read verse 16. I'm going to read verse 17. I'm going to skip ahead to 22 and read to the end. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I put all the pieces together? No. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Skipping ahead to 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Okay, so here, here's a recap. I was trying to understand you, God. And I was getting exhausted. And I was getting mad. And I was in a bad place. I was thinking about 
not just quitting my job as a worship leader, but throwing all of my faith away. I couldn't get my mind around you until I stopped treating you as a mere intellectual pursuit and I came home. There is a vast difference between treating God as an interesting subject of study and coming home. And here's how the psalmist came home. Here's how Asaph came home. He said something so counterintuitive to how we naturally think that when we first hear it again, we're like, no way. That's right. That is how you come home. He gets into God's presence and he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Instead of trying to clean up his act, instead of trying to act like envy isn't one of the Ten Commandments, not to do, do not covet, do not envy, instead of trying to understand God and sort of hiding behind these intellectual doubts, he says, I am a terrible person. You know God. Like the thoughts that I have, the feelings that I have, all these things that I vented in your presence and, and prayed in front of you reveal that I'm nothing like you. He's admitting, I don't deserve to come into your presence. And then we see that wonderful word, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Here's what he's realizing. This whole process that he's been through, from standing on the foundation of God's truth to nearly slipping and falling, having the guts to process all of this in the presence of God pre-reflectively so that he let go from his heart what was truly there, all of that was flowing from the reality that even though he was planning on giving up on God, God was not giving up on him. God was near him. God was with him. God was counseling him. After all, in his writing and in his processing, get this, God was writing the scriptures. And he concludes that God has been guiding him through his word and through his circumstances. And he had been brought to a solid place. And he stands in the sanctuary of God, not understanding, but beholding the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the goodness of God. God didn't tell him why he was doing what he was doing. He showed him his face. And what Asaph saw was a smile on God's face, was the beauty of God's countenance. Now, this will transform you. 
when you admit, I'm a beast, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God, I am deeply sinful and flawed, you bring that into God's presence and what you see back is not the God of legalism, not a God looking to punish you, but all of a sudden you see God open wide his arms and say, come here, child, it transforms you on the spot. Guys, have we become too sophisticated for this type of Christianity? Have we turned Christianity into something that it's not? Have we jumped back on the treadmill of performance? Have we been walking with Jesus so long that we think we don't need his grace anymore? Have we matured beyond the basic message of Christianity so all this is is just a religious show where we're going to connection group and we're relating to our spouse and we're relating to God in such a way that is simply a performance and has nothing to do with reality? What if God is calling us back to this basic, humble, childlike Christianity? Guys, kids are awesome at this. I was remembering when I was a kid, when I would do something wrong, and I would lay in bed at night, and my conscience would just start getting so heavy with whatever I had said to my mom or dad or done to one of my siblings. And I remember going and just knocking on my parents' door. And they would say, come in. And I would come in. And I would just lay it all down for them. I'm so sorry that I did this. And I would just be crying and losing it. And they would hold me tight and hug me. And when they hugged me, I would cry more. There is this longing within each of us to be accepted unconditionally. And the people that we share our emotions with are the people that we trust to give us good counsel and to accept us as we are. And here's what the psalmist is saying. The only person who can ever give you perfect counsel, that is, has the guts to tell you you're a beast and can affirm you and tell you that they love you is God. We're running around with our emotions and we're either throwing them at everybody that we know who can't really help us or we're stuffing them deep down inside trying to act like we're perfect. Why don't we just let them go in God's presence? Let him accept us. Let him draw us near. I think there's a few different things that we need to do in order to get to that place that the psalmist shows us. We need to admit that our intellectual doubts are more than just intellectual doubts. They're longing for, longings for acceptance. So whether you're tempted to give into the secular worldview that you're being presented in college, or you're tempted to make a God out of your theological position, you're actually going for the same thing. The acceptance of your peers or professors or the acceptance of the church and its leaders. 
And the psalmist is saying, the only acceptance you really need is God's. Come to him. Second thing we need to do is doubt our doubts. This is a Tim Kellerism. You have to understand that not having faith is impossible. See, underneath this expression of feeling and doubt from Asaph, we actually see a belief. And that is that prosperity, in a worldly sense, will satisfy. You need to doubt the doubt. So if you're like him and you're looking out into the world and you're seeing people prosper, and you're wishing that you could be them, and you're thinking that God's blessing is on them, you have an alternative belief. That alternative belief is that if you had what they had, you would be satisfied. And I want to challenge that belief. Some of the most miserable people in this world have what you want. The most beautiful people, the people with the most money, are the most unhappy. And the most important step is to come home. Come to God's sanctuary. Now, how in the world could we get the idea that terrible people like us could come into God's presence? How did Asaph get that idea? Do you know that he had far less reason to come than we do? We have a far greater reason. And the only reason that we're not experiencing the type of spiritual affirmation that he was getting from God is because we're not believing the truth. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, we live after Jesus. And Jesus has made a way into the sanctuary of God so that we can come right up to God's throne and sit on his lap. Because we know that although God is holy, he is our Father. We come not on the basis of our goodness or on the basis of cleaned up emotional lives, but on the basis of Jesus' finished work. So let's run into his arms, away from our intellectual doubts, away from our feelings of inferiority, and into his arms together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us a window into Asaph's heart. And as we read his processing of the world around him, we see ourselves. We see our own ignorance. 
we see our own anger, we see our own bitterness, we see our own unhappiness. We see ourselves being Christians and hating it. I ask that first you would give us the humility and the boldness to own that, to own up. Yeah, we do feel that way at times. Yes, we have been been bitter. Yes, we have been angry. And then God, that we would, for a time, put aside our thick theology books and our pursuit of putting all the pieces together. This afternoon, God, would you draw us into drawing near to you? Maybe some of us will need to get on our knees in our bedroom or even lay on our face and say, God, I, I forgot that you accept people not as they wish they would be, but as they are. Thank you that you accept me. Would, would we be able to even come now knowing that your throne is not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace because of the finished work of Christ? In Jesus' name.